0: Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season nine, episode three, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie
1: and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and
0: with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee.
1: Today, we'll be discussing the 1932 mystery slasher film, Thirteen Women. Based on the novel by Tiffany Thayer, the film was written by Bartlett Cormack and Samuel Ornitz and directed by George (laughs) Arshenbaud. The film stars Myrna Loy, Irene Dunn, Ricardo Cortez, Jill Esmond, Peg Entwistle, and Florence Eldridge.
0: We're not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. I also want to add an extra trigger warning here. This film deals with suicide, and we'll be discussing the topic of suicide in this episode. If you or someone you love is feeling suicidal, please don't hesitate to call the National Suicide Prevention Hotline at 1-800-273-8255. If you are a military veteran, please press 1. You can also visit the American Foundation of Suicide Prevention at AFSP.org. And I know we have a lot of Canadian listeners as well, so Canadians, please call 1-833-456-4566 or visit www.crisisservicescanada.ca. Additional resources are in this episode's show notes. Okay, are you all still here? Wonderful. Then let's get this morning started. Um, so, Abby, would you please read this plot summary that none of us wrote? <laughs> That we had to get from the internet just now before recording because we forgot to write a plot summary.
1: Or, you know, Abby forgot to write a plot summary because of her (laughs) freaking pregnancy brain. Oh my
0: God. Listen, pregnancy brain is real. Don't worry about it. It's not a joke.
1: (laughs) Female alumni of the St. Albans Seminary Sorority Group receive letters from Swami Yogadashi. Making alarming predictions of death and murder, which come true. When Helen receives her prediction, she contacts sorority leader Laura, who invites the remaining members to come to her home. On the journey there, Helen meets Ursula Georgie, a half Indian, unaware that Ursula's fury over her treatment in college is behind the Swami's predictions.
0: Dun dun dun! <laughs> <laughs> okay. So let's get into the production. So like we mentioned earlier, the film 13 Women is based on the 1930 novel by author Tiffany Thayer, who was known for writing trashy genre books at the time. I love it. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. According to neglectedbooks.com, quote, Thayer wrote genre romances that were disliked by contemporary literary critics. Dorothy Parker, in a New Yorker review of Thayer's book, An American Girl, said, quote, He is beyond question a writer of power, and his power lies in his ability to make sex so thoroughly, graphically, and aggressively unattractive that one is fairly shaken to ponder how little one has been missing. Unquote.
1: Wowee. Oh, my yeah. gosh.
0: And F. Scott Fitzgerald said of his books, quote, Curious children nosed at the slime of Mr. Tiffany Thayer in the drugstore libraries, unquote. Wow. Fellow genre writer William Ten described one of Thayer's sci-fi books as follows, quote, Absolutely fascinating and disgusting. If you ever find a copy, give it to some sci-fi fan you dislike. Your reward will be the baffled misery in his eyes after he's read it. Unquote.
1: Oh, my God. (laughs) Oh, my God.
0: Yeah, so it's safe to say that Thayer's work was not... I don't want to say it was not good, uh, but I guess it just wasn't for everyone. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) according to the wikipedia page dedicated to the film originally running 73 minutes the studio edited 14 minutes out of the picture prior to release and several characters were cut from the film you'll notice if you count all the women featured in the film there aren't 13 there's only 11 huh this is because two of the female characters' scenes were edited out before the film's release Apparently, the studio did this because audiences felt that the film dragged on. The film was only 73 minutes to begin with, and they cut almost 15 minutes worth. What? What the heck? It dragged on 73 minutes? (laughs) These
1: people (laughs) cannot hang. Are you kidding me? Just
0: sit still for one goddamn hour. (laughs) (laughs) I cannot (laughs) according to the wikipedia page dedicated to the film quote 13 women features the only film appearance of actress peg entwistle entwistle became despondent over her career and jumped to her death from the hollywood sign on september 16th 1932 at the very young age of 24 the film premiered in new york at the roxy theater on october 15th almost exactly a month after her suicide, and in Los Angeles in November, unquote. And we'll talk more about Peg Entwistle later in the episode. So the film also had a limited national release in 1933 and then again in 1935. And they did this because they wanted to cash in on the growing fame of Myrna Loy and Irene Dunn. In the end, 13 Women is considered a must-see among die-hard horror fans, and strangely enough, the societal issues it presents are still relevant. According to Kim, Kim Luperi, quote, Bullying is a major concern today, and, well, if you want a glimpse at the consequences of oppression and harassment, look no further than 13 Women. None of the women can be excused from the parts they played in the construction of this vicious fiend a woman hell-bent on retaliation who uses a few pages from their own book diabolically amplified of course unquote. and according to film blogger Michael Mallon quote 13 Women draws from elements of the murder mystery, psychological thriller, and occult practices to create a horror movie begging to be rediscovered. Myrna Loy is a sultry villainess, and director George Arschenbaud uses some neat camera tricks, like an animated star after some of the deaths, to segue into the next scene. If you're a horror buff like me, you'll definitely want to seek out this forgotten gem. Unquote. So true. It's so good. Yes, and it's a little bit hard to find. You can rent it on Amazon Prime at the moment, uh, at least from when we started recording this. Uh, but I was able to find it on Daily Motion for free. So head on over <laughs> <laughs> yes. if you want to watch it. It's only an hour long. It's very short, but it's so good.
1: It is so good. It's definitely worth the watch, especially if you like older films like that. Mm-hmm. It was good.
0: Yeah, well, especially if you like slasher films, because this was a a very early slasher film. Oh yes, and it totally plays out like Scream or any of those like psychological slashers, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, we'll we'll talk more about that later. But let's go on to the Bechtel test. Uh, yes, it passes a few times. There are lots of women in this film, and they talk a lot about stuff other than men. Yay! Yay. Nancy's dream team test. Was the supporting cast at least 50% women? Yes. Did a woman write, direct, produce, shoot, or edit the film? No. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Was the final girl or main character a person of color? <laughs> uh, oh. No. <laughs> Not the actress, at least. <laughs> yeah. Uh, we're going to talk a little bit about racism later but this was definitely a a early example of white people playing people who of color and it's um it's bad it's so bad it's really bad yeah were there any openly lgbt plus characters in the film no different
1: time (laughs) (laughs) very different different time time. (laughs) i mean this was pre-code
0: yeah that is true And I think there is a deleted scene, or I might be misremembering this. I don't know if one of the deleted scenes was of this or if this was in the book itself. But Peg Entwistle's character, Mm -hmm. uh, supposedly in the book, again, I can't remember if this was cut out of the film, but supposedly in the book, she kills her husband because she's in love with a woman oh yes so in the book there is you know representation in that sense in the book Mm -hmm. um and i like i said i can't remember if it was cut out or if there's just a mention of it in this film but peg entwhistle's character is supposed to be a lesbian
1: well dang it
0: yes but it's not again it's not openly shown in the film
1: right right
0: um but they're playing pre-code man I always wonder what would happen to film if if the Hayes Code didn't happen.
1: Oh my God,
0: I th- we would so much so I much I think would be so. different. It would be different hmm. It's interesting to think about. Mm-hmm. okay, so uh, I want to talk about understanding Hinduism in 1930s America because this film has a lot to do with it mm-hmm. um, and it's gonna come into play in our next discussion. according to an article for the Conversation. The first time the American public formally learned about Hinduism was through the World's Parliament of Religions, a gathering of practitioners of different faith traditions, which took place in Chicago in 1893. It was at this time when the it was at that time when the American public first saw and heard people from quote unquote Eastern religions, including Hindus and Buddhists on their own soil. Vivekananda, a young monk representing Hinduism, famously began his speech, hailing his hosts as quote-unquote brothers and sisters of America. It was most unusual for an Indian monk to embrace the audience as a single family at a time when societies were segregated and racial superiority was an accepted part of life. Vivekananda spoke extensively about the spiritual benefits of yoga and meditation, explaining how they were common resources for all human beings and not just for Hindus. And so that was from the conversation uh, website. And I think that's great. Yeah. I mean, freaking, that was 1893. (laughs) I know, know? that's very progressive. And also,
1: like, dang. (laughs) When you think about, like, how information spreads and stuff like that, like, that's so early for people to be learning about things like yoga and meditation and stuff like that, like you were talking about, like,
0: man. Yeah. And so Vivekananda would eventually go back and live in India But in 1920, Swami Pramahansa Yogananda arrived in New York and gave a similar talk about spirituality. And Yogananda would eventually create the Church of Self-Realization Fellowship, which until the 1960s was the largest Hindu-associated church in the United States. So from 1920 to 1960, there were Hindu-associated churches in the U.S. that... Everyone was welcome to and welcome to attend, even if they weren't Hindu. That's so amazing. It is kind of amazing. And um, I want to now talk about Hindu astrology. So astrology and horoscopes aren't just for the Greeks and the Chinese. According to the book, Karma and anthropological inquiry, astrology remains an important facet of folk belief in the contemporary lives of many Hindus. In Hindu culture, newborns are traditionally named based on their charts. Wow. Yes, and I actually did know this before reading about this because um, we uh, have friends whose sons were born a few years ago, um, and they're from India, and they said how they named their children off of when their kids were born. Whoa! And astrological concepts are pervasive in the organization of the calendar and the holidays and in making major decisions such as those about marriage, opening a new business, or moving into a new home. Many Hindus believe that heavenly bodies, including the planets, have an influence throughout the life of a human being. And these planetary influences are the Quote unquote, fruit of karma the navagraha planetary deities are considered subordinate to ishvara the hindu concept of a supreme being in the administration of justice thus it is believed that these planets can influence earthly life unquote oh, that is so cool yeah so there's a little brief history of Hinduism in America, and Hindu or Vedic astrology. Um, So let's talk about the power of suggestion, horoscope, psychology, and then of course, Peg Entwistle. So according to Paula's Cinema Club, quote, capitalizing on the spiritualism craze of the time and the mighty power of suggestion, Ursula sends each woman a fake astrology chart accompanied by a letter predicting death, dismemberment, or an an other calamity. She signs (laughs) the letters with the name of the Swami she works for. Each recipient then becomes so obsessed with her letter that the prediction comes true, unquote. And Nora Fiore says, quote, Ursula's victims play right into her hands as one of them wonders aloud. But the moon does control the tides and nothing can live without the sun. Why shouldn't we be controlled? And I actually really love that quote.
1: Mm -hmm. I mean, good.
0: It is. Uh, okay, so astrology and horoscopes were not anything new in the 1930s. Like I mentioned earlier, Hinduism was well enough known to Americans, at least Americans in big cities at the time. And even though the astrology that is shown in this film is not the same astrology that Hindus use, <laughs> it looks it looks way more like Greek astrology when you look at the pictures up close.
1: Yeah, definitely.
0: Uh, astrology in general was something that Americans were aware of. According to the Smithsonian Magazine, celebrity natal charts weren't a particularly novel idea. American and British newspapers routinely trotted astrologers out to find out what the stars had in store for society pagers. Even the venerable New York Times was, wasn't was about consulting the stars. In 1908, a headline declared that President Theodore Roosevelt, who was a Sagittarius, quote, might have been different with another birthday, unquote according to an expert astrologer, Madame Humphrey. (laughs) Well, well. (laughs) Yeah. So, again, astrology was nothing new. According to Polly Campbell for Psychology Today, a deliberate suggestion can influence... How well people remember things, how they respond to medical treatments, and even how well they will perform and behave, according to research by Marianne Gary, Robert Michael, and Irving Kirsch. The reason, they say, is attributable to something called response expectancies, This means that the way we anticipate a response to a situation influences how we will actually respond. In other words, once you expect something to happen, your behaviors, thoughts, and reactions will actually contribute to making that expectation occur. Using suggestion in this way can be a powerful tool in accomplishing our goals, but many of us get caught up on the other side thinking only of our limitations. The power of suggestion is just as powerful in those situations actually sabotaging our success, unquote.
1: Yeah. Do you remember when The Secret came out?
0: Oh, (laughs) yes, I do.
1: It was a really big deal, like, everywhere. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, That's actually basic psychology, like you were just talking about. Like, the law of attraction is powerful because our minds actually become the powerful tool that we're using when we're shaping the outcomes of our lives. And it's something psychologists and sociologists attribute to self-fulfilling prophecies. Um, Self-fulfilling prophecies are interesting to me because individuals don't realize the true power that they have within their brains. Um, According to the Britannica definition, Self-fulfilling prophecy is a process through which an originally false expectation leads to its own confirmation. In a self-fulfilling prophecy, an individual's expectations about another person or entity eventually result in the other person or entity acting in ways that confirm the expectations. So, in the film, we see this happen with the women after they read their horoscopes and the dread of what the future holds is enough to send them into a downward spiral of despair and anxiety.
0: Yeah, and I kind of want to connect all of this to Peg Entwistle. According to Nora Fiore, quote, one has to wonder if the film exerted an insidious real-life influence on Peg Entwistle, perhaps even planting the seed of a dramatic death by falling in her mind. Just as her character seems imprisoned by headlines, Entwistle herself has gone down in history as a shocking episode in movie land folklore. The fame that eluded her in life was ironically bestowed upon her in death. Did the dark plot of 13 women, in addition to all of her other worries and woes, work some kind of malign spell on her? Did she relate too closely to the film's theme of self-fulfilling prophecies?
1: It truly could be. I mean, maybe this film just hit too close to home for her. Like, it's something that we've seen in Hollywood before, too. And the most popular one that comes to mind is like Heath Ledger when he acted out his role as Joker in the Batman Mm -hmm. franchise. But when you're in that frame of mind, it is hard to break free when you're living and breathing it and suddenly
0: there's no separation between your
1: like work-life balance Right.
0: And I don't know much about Peg Entwistle's life. I know that she worked in theater a lot mm. before she did 13 Women. Um, and she's British. She was British. Mm. So she wasn't from the United States either. So there's also that uh, sadness of being away from home. Yeah. And being in a completely different culture. And I mm-hmm. feel like that also really connects to the film. Yeah. Obviously, Ursula. Her character is from India, which is primarily not a white country, even though it was, I'm going to say it, invaded by white people. Yeah. Uh, but that whole idea of like a stranger in a strange land mm-hmm. kind of comes up for Peg. And I wonder if that also had a big effect on her. I just think that it's really interesting that this film is all about suggestion and about you know, making your own fate based on that suggestion and the fact that Entwistle did perish, you know, by jumping from the H from the Hollywood sign right before this film was released. It's, I don't know, it's just, it's one of those weird coincidences. Yeah. Like, it's just strange that that happened at all. So, I don't know. If anyone out there listening knows a little bit more about Peg Entwistle, I really want to learn more uh, Let me know if you know any resources. Like, I think she has a few biographies out there, which is nice. But yeah, it's like she became famous because she died. Uh, So let's talk about pre-code female ensemble films. According to Janine Bassinger in an article they wrote about the history of female ensemble films for Variety, quote, It's significant that a film starring a female, no matter what other genre it may be, comedy, romance, musical, crime, western, film, noir, melodrama, was always known as a quote-unquote woman's film. (laughs) There was no equivalent man's film category. (laughs) Even if a movie cast a group of great male stars, it wasn't a male ensemble film. It was a western, like The Magnificent Seven, or a war film, The Dirty Dozen, or perhaps even a masterpiece, The Bridge Over the River Kwai. Films with men didn't need to worry about genre status, but the female ensemble gave the woman's film a chance to grab some. Technically, a female ensemble film has to have more than three leading ladies to qualify for the type. Threesome female movies, like Valley of the Dolls, don't count. They were always a staple of Hollywood storytelling, being used as cautionary tales to warn women how they might end up, married, disappointed, or dead. Yikes!
1: <laughs> what a bleak outlook. Yes, <laughs> not that marriage is bleak, but
0: <laughs> no, it's not if you marry the right person.
1: No, exactly. Um, I think it's also really interesting how. The villain in this film is a woman who is kind of disguised as a man. Like, Ursula using the Swami and, like, using his identity to kind of, like, cover up what's actually going on. That's true. I never thought of that. Because it's, like, pretty insidious, you know? Like, especially as a supposedly mixed-race woman, and I say supposedly because of the ridiculous amount of racism in this film, but <laughs> um, she's seeking revenge for the wrongdoings of these, like, seemingly innocent women, and it shows the duality of females, though it's, I mean, it's really negative in some ways. It's a huge step for cinema at this time.
0: Yeah, and according to Michael Mallon, quote, 13 women is an example of a female ensemble film, yet oddly all of the women in the picture are comprised of divorced and single moms. Mm -hmm. There are no husbands in sight. And even the one who is married shoots her husband at the beginning of the film. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And the movie Waffler points out, Irene Dunn plays a single mother trying to stop Loy from claiming the life of her son. How often do we see a single mother as the heroine of a movie now, let alone back then? Mm -hmm. Male audiences may have found this early feminism uncomfortable. In his review at the time, New York Times critic Mordaunt Hall noted, quote, an uncomfortable absence of hearty male chatter in this demonical intrigue. Wow. And several characters meet their fate through suicide, a topic that immediately became taboo once the code was introduced. Uh, So that's interesting.
1: Wowee. <laughs> I mean, it was actually pretty amazing to see such a progressive film like this come out of the 1930s. And yeah, the
0: Hayes Code ruined everything. Yeah,
1: it truly, <gasps> truly did. Like, the, the dialogues between the female characters about autonomy... And, like, the risque language that they use when they talk about, like, men and the role that they play in their lives. And also the bonds that the women share with each other in the film. It
0: was, like, oddly refreshing. Yeah, and I want to go back to what the movie Waffler pointed out, was that how often do we see single mothers in films now, let alone back then? And you're right. But you know what we do see single moms in now? We see a lot of single moms in horror. Yup. The ring. The, the ring, ring is, is like, the prime example. Yes. Yep. And we, we do talk about the ring in one of our very early episodes. <laughs> 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 Not sure if it's a good discussion because that was before we knew what the hell we were doing.
1: Yeah. But listen at your own risk. Listen <laughs>
0: at your own risk. Exactly. <laughs> um, But we do. I remember we did talk about how she was a single mom. And I think, I think that's even the title of the episode, like single mom or something. Yeah. And it was like. That's huge to have that representation and in a film, yeah. especially in a film where she is yeah, the heroine. Laura, the who is the woman who's single, right? like she I mean she's single she doesn't she has a son um but she's a bully. Yeah, she is. So it's hard to also kind of you feel bad for her because obviously she has changed. Mm-hmm. And she even talks about it. She's like, we were kids. But that doesn't excuse anything that she did. Like, just because you were a kid. I mean, honestly... I think kids are just as mean as adults.
1: I, In a way, I feel like they're worse because they don't <laughs> know. Like they just don't have the social boundaries that adults do. So they're just like, ah, yeah, <laughs> like,
0: yeah, yeah, they just say their things, their <laughs> yeah, they say things because they don't realize they haven't developed that empathy yet either. I want to talk about Ursula and how she relates to slasher films and then, of course, like the racism that's brought up in this film. Mm -hmm. According to Don Keatley for the website Horror Homeroom, which is one of my personal absolute favorite resources for all things horror, please check out Horror Homeroom. uh, Don says, quote, the undeniable center of the film is the monstrous, quote unquote, half breed Ursula Georgie. Thirteen Women renders Ursula inhuman in the implacibility of her revenge. Think Jason Voorhees and Freddy Krueger. As the protagonist, Laura, asks in her final confrontation with Ursula, quote, what have I done? What has anyone done to make you so inhuman? Ursula is indeed inhuman, the murderous force behind her victim's self emulation And Ursula's monstrousness also lies in her being what. Noel Carroll calls categorically contradictory. She is a mixture of what is normally distinct. She is an inhuman monster who is also a beautiful woman. She seems white, and yet she is racially other an invading Asian, the kind of person against whom Americans were busily crafting anti-immigration laws in the early decades of the 20th century. As much as Ursula embodies the quote-unquote yellow peril about which Americans became rather hysterical in the early 20th century, she can and does pass as white which of course only makes her still more of a threat, in exacting her revenge on the white sorority women for refusing to let her cross the color line. Ursula is also punishing them for contributing to her sexual exploitation and implied rape by white sailors. The sorority women didn't just refuse Ursula's safe harbor as white, but, then, but more specifically, they denied her the protections of a white woman without which she is left utterly vulnerable. The film's complexity, then, in terms of how it represents the intersection of gender and race when it comes to sexual violence, is just stunning. Unquote.
1: Yeah, and it's also important to note here that these women failed to protect one of their own. So, in many ways... They failed to protect
0: another woman, yeah.
1: Yeah, so, like, in many ways, Ursula is alienated so badly... That she uses her cunning to get revenge, but also protect herself. And I think that that's, like, yes, she is a villain. And no, I don't think that, like, it's right to kill people. Right. <laughs> but also, like, what are you going to do when you feel like you're completely alone and by yourself and, like, you cannot rely on anyone else? It's just, like, a terrible position to be put in.
0: You know, I... I want to add something. Um, I just thought of this, but this is, this sort of reminds me of, um, rape revenge films. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And how the woman who is raped will try to kill her rapists, or she does kill them. And obviously, it's like, we don't condone murder.
1: (laughs) No, no. Um,
0: But film is great, especially horror films, are great to help us live out our fantasies.
1: Yes, it's very cathartic.
0: Yes, especially when we live in a society where rapists and racists get away. Yeah, all the time. (laughs) All the time. And this film, obviously, has many issues, but... I think deep down this film is cathartic in a way uh because even though the the you know Ursula who is a person of color the character at least mm-hmm. is um a villain she is acting out a like she's she is getting back at her oppressors right and for somebody who has dealt with that or somebody who has dealt with extreme racism mm-hmm that would be very cathartic you know so i can see how it you know know, about ursula unfortunately she dies at the end and stuff so she doesn't she does she doesn't really get away with it really um Mm -hmm. but she is um easy to relate to for a lot of people i'm sure uh that i mean i i love her
1: (laughs) i think think she's she's I think she's great, honestly. I think she's great,
0: like, too. Ugh. I do. And, I mean, I think that the representation of women in this film in general is really good. But I think Ursula, I mean, it's just, you have to look at it. This is the 30s. Everyone was ridiculous. A lot of people are, still are. But, you know, it's like nobody really knew what was okay to say and do and stuff right? but I think that the fact that this film talks about racism in general is huge for 1932 yeah and according to Benjamin Walton after cornering Stanhope aboard a train Georgie so Stanhope is Laura and then Georgie is Ursula, discloses the reason for her hatred. Do you know what it means to be a half-breed, a half-caste in a world ruled by whites? The white half of me cried for the courtesy and protection that women like you get. The only way I could free myself was by becoming white, and it was almost in my hands when you and your Kappa society stopped me." So such a soliloquy seems taken from a modern post-colonial narrative, although in actuality 13 Women, the novel and the film, came out in a time when European empires in Africa, Asia, and Latin America were still very much alive. Although Georgie's anti-white tirade is made in in order to turn the calculating killer into a hysterical egoist, especially considering that such racial snubs hardly explain multiple attempts at killing a former classmate's child, (laughs) the scene still seems shocking. And this is significant because pre- and post-Hays Code movies, right? like I mentioned earlier, didn't usually deal with the terrors of racism. And I think the fact that ursula's reasoning for wanting to kill these women is racially motivated is pretty amazing Mm -hmm. and i mean off the top of my head i can't think of anything else like it and what's even more interesting is the fact that ursula wants to be seen as white she's not proud of her indian background and hates the fact that she is foreign and she wants to try and fit into white society she feels like she is She feels like if she's seen as white, she is protected from the racist horrors of the world. And unfortunately, she's right. She kills these women for bullying her, but she also does it because she has a sense of self-loathing. But there's some major issues with that as well.
1: Yeah, definitely. But I want to say, too, in regards to the Hayes Code, like we were kind of talking about earlier... It really makes me wonder how much further we'd be as a nation, culturally, if we were allowed to just talk about this shit. Like, we now have years of undoing to do when it comes to the way we approach topics of racism, and it's- it's almost like we're little babies that have had to learn and unlearn new language in order to support those struggling. And- If we'd been allowed to see how non-white people suffer at the hands of literal domestic terrorism and discrimination, we could have saved ourselves and a lot of people of color some trouble. And I mean, in a way, you can place some of the blame on the film industry for failing us. And I mean, obviously, they can't shoulder all of the blame, but in a lot of ways, film shapes our society, and it's part of the rhetoric in our country, and it has the power to influence, and as we see now, the power to omit certain feelings about gender, race, stereotypes, etc. So, I just feel like films like this should have been allowed to exist, and the Hayes Code really, truly did ruin us
0: in a lot of ways. And it yes. sucks. <laughs> Yes, because film has a big impact on our society. And if that is is oppressed in any way, we are, as a society, are oppressed. Right. People of color m- remain oppressed. And LGBTQ persons remain oppressed. Women. Every, you know, it's just like, you're right. It's amazing how, like, we almost live in an alternate reality where it's like, the world, you know, that we could have been if the Hayes code hadn't existed. That would be actually a really interesting movie yeah. <laughs> in well, itself. I think
1: it's so. It's kind of incredible too how people don't really see that. Right, it's because even saddening.
0: Like right, because even though Ursula is played by a white woman from, I think Missouri. <laughs> I think that's Yikes. where Fernaloy is from. <laughs> Um, Even though she's played by a white woman, who's to say that a year later that this movie was remade or a different movie came out and, you know, they, it was the main character was played by a, a person of color. Right. And not by a white person pretending to be a person of color. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. And so it's like, I, uh, what's her name? That woman who... Anna Mae Wong. I mean, Anna Mae Wong was known... Oh no! She was in films from the 1920s. She was in films from the 1920s up through the 30s. Mm-hmm. She famously was snubbed a role. Uh, I forgot which one, but she was uh, famously snubbed a role in a film uh, that ended up having a uh, a white person play an Asian person. <sighs> and she, I guess, auditioned for it and she didn't get it. And that actress ended up winning an Oscar oh my for God. that role. Yeah. So, maybe shit like that wouldn't have happened.
1: God. uh... You know?
0: Like, I don't know. Who knows? So, I think that even more amazing, though, in this film is that all these women made fun of Ursula as a child, and they were cruel to her because of her race, yet here they are appropriating her culture (laughs) by using or following these horoscope readings. God. And... Ursula is using her culture to sabotage these women. She's using their appropriation against them, <laughs> which I actually also really fucking love. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's about time. This film's considered a trash film, a trash novel. I don't know. I don't get why it's considered like
1: so, so, so trashy because I'm like, I feel like this is comparable to I mean, a couple other films that I've seen from that time period. It's not like...
0: I don't know. It's just no, know very odd mean. to me. Like, <laughs>
1: I don't know how to explain it,
0: but... Probably because it was a female ensemble genre film.
1: Yeah. yeah. And
0: people hate horror films and people hate women. <laughs> so, you know. What the hell? <laughs> um, I want to uh, share a quote from Brett Gallman for Oh, the Horror... Quote, if 13 women has gone the extra mile to make Georgie truly sympathetic, in the end you can bet your ass it's all about preserving the life of an actual white woman, it'd be a little more rich and complex. As it stands, though, it kind of plays to both sides. It's somehow kind of racist, yet woke all at once, Mm -hmm. (laughs) marking it as a harbinger of the exploitative track. And slasher genre would eventually take. It's not as immediately and obviously provocative as later efforts, but it's willing to embrace its trashy potential, unquote.
1: <laughs> yes, what a great quote.
0: <laughs> okay. So, final thought. Who is to blame? Nora Fiori says in their article, quote, Who is to blame, the monster or the bullies who created her, unquote. And Nora also points out that there is an excellent mirror shot at the end of the film where Laura looks in a mirror and sees Ursula standing behind her.
1: Oh, I love that shot. That was such a cool thing that they put Mm -hmm. in there. I loved Mm -hmm. it. Okay, so I have a lot of thoughts about this. Oh, good. (laughs) Let me hear them. And um, a lot of it has to do with psychology and spirituality. And personally, I don't think it's right for ursula to have resorted to murder but you know given our discussions and stuff like that it's uh i don't think it's out of the realm of um you know revenge and that kind of thing
0: in film it's cathartic yeah yes it's true
1: however i am about as unmarginalized as it gets (laughs) like i'm a cis white woman who didn't grow up poor i was afforded a lot of luxury and i had a good group of friends who were pretty much accepting of me growing up. Like, I never really had any problems with my friend group by any means. And I struggle a lot more as an adult because I understand more about how the world works. And the women that treated Ursula unjustly because of her mixed-race heritage had to learn the hard way that they were wrong. So... As humans, we cannot simply dismiss the mistreatment of non-white people and expect them to just get over it and move on. Like, I hate that sentiment that, like, especially when it comes to the discussions of, like, slavery and stuff like that in our country, people are like, oh, that happened so long ago. Yeah, it's it's over.
0: It's like... like it's actually not. <laughs>
1: it's scientifically it's not. proven that it's not over and that it is handed down through the generations. But well, and then it's used in in other ways. Sports. Um, we could talk about the prison system all day that long. Too. Yep. I mean, Ursula could very well be considered a product of her upbringing in past life. But I mean, if we're gonna go that route, then. We'd have to look at more than a few serial killers who've been abused and say that their actions are excusable on the basis of their psychological scars from the past. And I think the big takeaway here, though, is that all of this racism and appropriation catches up with you. Like, if you're a white person, it's going to catch up with you. <laughs> Eventually, people get pushed to the brink and do these things as kind of a survival mechanism. And, like, think about it. If you were facing constant threats and you had to always be looking over your shoulder, your first instinct might not be to turn the other cheek, especially if someone is out to hurt you. Like, it would be to protect you and yours. And, I mean, in a perfect world, we'd all just forgive each other, but unfortunately, that's not always an option. And... I'm a big proponent of, like, just because something bad happens to you, like, that doesn't mean that you get to act out in a way or harm other people, or, like, just because you're a victim of abuse doesn't mean that you get to abuse other people.
0: No. There's totally... plenty, that's... plenty of people who were abused as children who do not abuse, abuse now as adults. Exactly. But... It's not an excuse. No, no, no.
1: But that's also not what I'm saying here. I'm like kind of glad that this movie exists because it's kind of like it's a chance for white people to like take a step back and be like holy shit like the things that we have done are literally causing these things to happen and like to take responsibility kind of for well their actions
0: right and i know there's a lot of problematic stuff with ursula wanting to be white um but i I, how i mentioned earlier how this reminds me of a rape revenge film it kind of is a rape revenge film because ursula is raped by white sailors she says so she says i was raped and you girls didn't save me yeah and she is not getting back at these white sailors she's getting back at these white women, who should have been her ally, and they turned the other cheek. Yeah. And they made it worse for her, and they were racist towards her in other ways. hmm I mean, it is about race, but at the heart, this film is a rape revenge film. Oh, okay. Well, that's <laughs> it for this week's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Let's add some sugar cubes to our coffee. Uh, Abby, do you have anything nice that happened to you?
1: <laughs> yeah. In, this,
0: in these trying times? Um,
1: well, a couple things, actually. School started, and it's been going great. My classes are super interesting, and I love it, and it's all online, so I get to wear my pajamas while I learn things.
0: That's so great.
1: (laughs) So that was nice. Um, And also, I got to see my son's face for the first time. I got one of the 3D ultrasounds done at my last appointment, so it's very very exciting he looks a lot like me
0: (laughs) that's so exciting oh my goodness yeah Yeah. what about you so for me my biggest thing is that I've been doing a lot more self-care like y'all can't see this but for the majority (laughs) of this recording I had little eye masks like under eye masks over my under my eyes you got to (laughs) You gotta. This is the only time I can do it without my son trying to rip them off my face. Um, (laughs) Oh, no. But (laughs) what are uh, these? (laughs) What are these? No. Um, So I've been doing a lot more self care. I've actually, you know, on the pro, you know, I've actually been doing a lot of like meditation and practicing stillness and do a lot of uh, healing of my inner child work, Mm. uh, which has been really great. It's really hard to do that kind of stuff. It's really hard to look at your past. It is, and uh, especially when you're a kid, because there's not much you kind of you can change as a kid. Mm-hmm. So, I've been doing a lot of that work, and that has been like really great for me. It's been really positive. It's made me like a, I think, a better person because I'm a lot more open about my feelings. So it's been a better, you know, I have a better relationship now I think with my husband and with my son because I'm more honest with you know my past and what it, you know, what happened to me and like how I was treated and how I feel now. So I know that sounds like kind of down maybe to some people like oh no, oh, no Gracie, but it's but it's been really great for me. So that has been like something really sweet and really nice that I've been dealing with. So I've yeah. It's been I love good. It.
1: That's yeah. so inspiring. I love oh. it. Oh, thanks. Oh, crazy.
0: Oh, it's okay. I'm all cry.
1: right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no, don't cry. It's okay. <laughs> no, it's okay. Everything makes me cry. I'm pregnant. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> <laughs>
0: oh. Well, thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I think we should start opening this up to... Uh, our listeners and letting them, you know, tell us what their sugar cubes have been.
1: Yeah, it would be nice to hear from other people some of
0: the positive things that have been happening. Please do. So uh, next episode, we will share our sugar cubes, but we'll also share a few others. So let us know. You can email us at goodmorningnancy at com uh but uh, you will get a hold of us quicker if you get, <laughs> if you contact us on our social media and if you like what we do please consider becoming a patron Abby and I work really hard on this show without any help from researchers or editors. So let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com/goodmorningnancy. If Patreon isn't your deal, you can also show us your support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. Head on over to goodmorningnancy.com/merch and click the shirt icon and that will take you right to our shop. Yeah,
1: and we know that times are tough right now, so a free way to help the show is by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show.
0: Yes, and don't forget, black lives still matter, trans lives still matter, so check out our show notes on how you can help out. We love you all to death. Have a good morning. Bye.